It is a damn good day to have a damn good day. It's Art Basil in Miami, and you know what that means. That means Mr. Nazar Chaffney is going to come through. What a treat. We're drinking coffee. What's up, man? Good to see you. It's been a while. It's been a while, and it just yeah. feels like yesterday. It does, yeah. We uh, spent a lot of time together. It feels uh, like I still see you every day, and good to see you've been uh, doing well. Serendipitous. Yeah. We've been rocking and rolling the entire journey. Your journey is absolutely astounding and admiring. Uh, for me, for everyone that understands, I worked with Nazar for five years uh, when we were building Trueface and saw it from the early stages where it was just myself, you, and Sean, and uh, with a facial recognition device called Chewy, which was basically sort of like uh, a device that allows you to open your door with your face and uh, to see the progression and everything that happened throughout that journey to eventually leading into a successful acquisition of the company. It was just remarkable to see that firsthand and it built so much respect and just admiration for you and Sean because you guys accomplished what you know 90% of business owners never ever get to feel. So congratulations and man, let's let's get into it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it does. Uh, it feels great. And um, I'm thankful for everyone that helped along the way. Um, there's definitely a fa- like a luck factor. There's definitely uh, some luck to it. But I would say it's mostly uh, persistence and being one of the last few uh, companies standing, for example, in the industry. And I think a big part of it comes down to that. It's definitely right place, right time, but with the right people. I mean, the crew you put together was just absolutely outstanding. All of the engineers. I just want to give a quick shout out to Chin May, to Cyrus, to Manuel. Yeah, uh, some of the Some of the OGs, Mason, Chris, uh, you know, Omar <laughs> yes. was in there. Just a lot of OGs that helped build the company. And what a great family that was built in the process. Yeah, uh Somehow we managed to attack different but like-minded individuals in in many aspects, and it was a great team. It definitely uh, it takes a special team to endure the uncertainty and the um, fast-paced environment that we had to work in for many years. And I'm I have a first-hand view of of just sort of your personality and how you work and get stuff done and your ability to just be sort of addicted to technology. I mean, you are you have a squirrel brain in the best way when it comes to tech. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you, that's, you, that's true. I mean, I'm not going to um, object to that. You have the, you're, you're working on like 20 different projects at once and not because it's a lack of focus. It's because you find so many things so fascinating and you're able to put things together. I mean, you're literally like what a CTO should be. And it's, it's remarkable when I hang out with you, it makes me want to start four or five different types of companies. Uh, number one, because you have the tools set, you have the ideas, you're deep in that world and you've done it already. So it's really exciting. What's going to happen next. Uh, thank you. A good, uh, definitely it's good to, uh, hear. And from, from my perspective, uh, it's mostly, it's, uh, partly, the love of learning as well. I uh, I do like learning new technologies, and very often uh, I don't know anything about them before I order something or touch it or get started with something. 
And uh, that's the case for many people. And I really don't think it takes uh, any special kind of knowledge or intelligence to do that. Uh, the main, I'm just not afraid of, uh, of messing up. But I, you have uh, this natural curiosity that drives I do. you. But I guess what I was trying to say, if I, uh, if I had one chance to do something, I'll probably not be able to do anything. It's just the fact that uh, I give myself enough room to mess up and I, and I like go into something expecting that I would have to do it twice or three times before I get it. And that's really all it takes. Uh, uh, just attempting it and then giving yourself enough room to, to make mistakes. And that's, that recipe has been enough for me to kind of almost tackle any any engineering and technology challenge. But it seems that you genuinely enjoy the process, right? I mean, you definitely get frustrated and I've seen it firsthand when things don't work, but you enjoy yeah. the process of finding out how to make it work. 100%. Uh, it's that, uh, the, you definitely need to have some of that as well, that love of learning and curiosity. And a big part of it is, uh, is seeing the end product and, and, uh, I do get a certain gratification from building things and uh, a sense of accomplishment from yeah, seeing a complete thing after, after I'm done with it, for example. But it does take someone that, love, that, needs to, that loves to learn and that finds the field itself interesting and that wants to uh, like see the outcome of his, or actually is motivated by the outcome or the end product of, of what he's doing. When I describe you to my friends, I essentially will voice you as, in my opinion, a top 500 to 1,000 en software engineer in the world. I just think you're that talented. And your work has, in a sense, and some <laughs> capabilities proven that with the algorithms you've worked on and your ability to do insane one-to-end matching and facial recognition and all this stuff with this amazing team you've built. Uh, it's it's truly remarkable. And I was curious, like, how do you define yourself? Do you consider yourself a software engineer, an engineer? Are you just all all forms of engineer? I would definitely consider myself more of a, a systems engineer uh, or product engineer versus uh, software engineering is definitely the thing I spent the most time on and was my day-to-day -day occupation for a long time. Uh, but I do enjoy uh, the mechanical aspect of uh, product making, uh, industrial design. I do like uh, electrical engineering as well. And I love to, uh, I love putting products in full together from uh, um, like the software, the electrical components, all the way to the enclosure that houses it. And uh, being able to do that uh, allowed me to prototype my ideas uh, from A to Z, for example. And uh, it's, it's definitely uh, a good skill. Uh, the, the other side of it I would like to mention, it's just kind of being able, being exposed to all these different ideas, even though sometimes they don't overlap, uh, was very beneficial in that uh, the knowledge definitely tickles down into other uh, fields. Uh, I was a computer vision engineer and um, I, when I picked up a camera and tried to use it for the first time, I realized that uh, I knew a lot of what was going on. And a lot of times you find that it's actually more simple in your mind than you perceived it to be. 100%. Uh, it's one thing you learn. Uh, every complex system uh, is built in a series of steps and uh, you have to kind of break it down into individual components and build on it step by step. What I'm trying to say is, uh, well, uh, however the complex the system you look at uh, is 
they've uh, we've start like they've started building it from a single step and and that's the way to to go about it. essentially just kind of figure out what the first thing you need to do to get started the second the third and uh, think in terms of steps if you try to kind of build the entire complex system f uh, from the get-go it will be uh, it'll be very difficult to essentially break it down into steps is that <laughs> is the advice I was trying to convey here yeah. well it's interesting because I've known you so long I just jumped right into the juice but I think it'd be good for just the listeners to kind of learn a little bit about you know who you are your background and sort of where you came from the Moroccan journey of Nazar it's definitely uh, as confusing of a background as my <laughs> interest in occupations. I, uh, I grew up in the Middle East in Abu Dhabi. I was born and grew up in Abu Dhabi. Uh, my family's Moroccan and uh, went to school in Dallas, of all places, to SMU with Sean and Mason. And um, after graduating, I moved to Morocco to live with my dad for a couple of years and had the chance to run for parliament. So I ran for parliament on behalf of the Istiqlal Party, which is... Uh, the oldest party in Morocco, and actually the party in power now. And um, at the time, it was 2011, so it was a time of change in the region. People were worried, and, and uh, it was definitely an opportunity for a young person like me to try and uh, get the nomination in Casablanca Island in, in one of the poorest areas of the city. And it's called... Uh, and you did it in complete... You, you said you wanted to change this, or did you do it just as like a screw it, let's do it? No, I definitely had some uh, ideas, uh, if not uh, uh, universally uh, approved by everyone over there. But uh, I, def I definitely ran a different campaign. I, uh, uh, and this was in 2011. I saw a Facebook page and forums for people to, to kind of reach out to me. And that, they were uh, super active. I ended up with a few thousand people uh, by the end of the campaign. Um, I had a website as well where people could contact me and submit uh, uh, issues. I managed uh, about 300 people during the course of the campaign, but I lost. And um, I finished uh, sixth out of 24 candidates. The top three uh, got seats in parliament. And I'm definitely uh, very happy that uh, I didn't win. It's something I can do in the future if I want to. Uh, and my life uh, as a technology entrepreneur and living in all the places we've lived and working together and uh, traveling was definitely uh, more fun, I would say, than yeah, being a parliament member. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. to tell me about the journey at SMU. So even the, 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 the beginning of, of starting to work on Chewy and uh, sort of the journey into entrepreneurship. We... Uh, so myself and Sean um, have always known that we were going to start a company post-graduating. We talked about it a lot in college, and we actually did start one in college uh, together. And uh, that was perhaps the first iteration of what was later to come. Um, it was definitely a, diff a cultural shock at first and a great learning experience. Uh, all of a sudden, I was uh, thousands of miles away from any oversight or family. <laughs> and... Uh, it was completely up to me. Do you think they kind of reeled you in a little bit? Well, in the first uh, semester, I went uh, completely loose and I... <laughs> Which is chill. I mean, it's yeah. college. That's the point. <laughs> exactly. 
But I recovered from that in the second semester and eventually realized that, uh, yeah, it's, it was completely up to me if I wanted to kind of succeed at this or not. Uh, yeah, no one is going to force me to, or, or yeah, like watch me and, uh, yeah. You took so life into your own hands. Exactly. SMU was kind of of a like coming of age experience in that sense, uh, and at the same time, it was the first place where I kind of found my passion for learning new things. Um, that was when I first uh, started to spend hours uh, at my apartment alone, kind of picking up a new skill or learning to do something or coming up with something, for example. At SMU, yep. you guys got something in the water there because out of all the colleges I've ever heard in my life, there have been more successful humans that have come out of SMU than anyone I've, I've met in colleges. I would uh, agree with that. Uh, it's my, I don't know if it's uh, the water, the environment per se or anything or, or just the uh, luck or chance, but uh, it's definitely uh, been... Uh, I think it's partly the uh, the support group that exists over there. The fact that uh, it's a great school for networking, and uh, just by going there, you you're in touch with a lot of uh, uh, good people that can w uh, help you afterwards. That can uh, guide you, uh, put you in touch with investors, help you find uh, employees, uh, the skill sets you're That's looking cool. for. That's cool. They have a cool program, it seems. Yeah, it's interesting. Just throughout the whole journey of going through the you know we talk a lot about entrepreneurship on this podcast we talk a lot about top performance people that are you know achieving incredible results uh, and one thing i love highlighting is that a lot of the people on the show they're very normal people that just decided they're going to do it and just that commitment of deciding you're going to do it already puts you above 99 percent of the world because most people just won't do it they're always in idea mode never execution mode when you look back on the journey from all the way from you knew you guys were going to start a company all the way to having a successful acquisition, and when you think about it, what are maybe some of the biggest core lessons that, that you learned in the process that strike you now as, as something that uh, you almost wish you would have known when you first got started, that you had to learn the hard way? <laughs> when we first started, uh, we naively believed that a lot of our assumptions are gonna hold and even though we uh we expected uh for some of them not to hold but we were still kind of sure about uh our knowledge of the market and uh the core lesson is um yeah to give yourself room to to make mistakes uh the core assumptions you initially make uh will never turn out uh in my opinion uh sorry in my personal experience uh, almost never turn out to be true, and if you stake your entire company's existence on it or your future, it might be a uh, much harder to recover from than if you kind of walked into it with that mindset. Uh, I think that's, uh, like you said, uh, people sometimes uh, get stuck at the execution step. I do totally believe it's the hardest once you take that first step, from my personal experience, uh, everything uh, just seems much easier than you expected it to be. Totally. Um, it's almost like stepping into the darkness or the, the misunderstood. Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden you realize you, you are, like, your pupils open and like your eyes adjust. It's not as crazy as you think or yeah. you start to see it from a different angle. 
Yeah, exactly. Like you said, uh, it takes a special kind of team to, uh, we like our team was definitely special and from, it was, it's an iterative process. It was a trial and error to kind of put all those people together. It's interesting because I know you're very humble when you talk about it. And I think that one thing a lot of companies always experience is there's a lot of dysfunction in many different companies. Like everything isn't a perfect, beautiful yellow brick road trip to success. I mean, there's ups and downs, there's internal fights. I mean, I remember Sean said something once that like you and Sean were almost married, you know, you're like a married couple and, uh, and, and you, there's a lot of things that go with that and the relationship and, uh, you know, the reality though is the net net is you built an amazing team. Trueface was amazing. It was incredible. And what you guys did was just outstanding. And I just think that, I mean, I always just preach that, but I mean, you should feel so proud of, of the accomplishments. Cause I know you're so critical of yourself all the time. you you kind of always think what you could have done better or this, this, but there's so much good that you guys did and came out of it. And it's just, it's extremely impressive. There's a couple of aspects to it. For me, for example, because I see this every day, I work on this stuff every day, it's a little bit of like knowing how the sausage is made. Like it doesn't feel special to me uh, as opposed to uh, like versus someone who's, who sees it for the first time. Uh, the other side of it is, like you said, it takes a good mix of uh, skills and personalities. And uh, I liked emotional intelligence. Sean is extremely emotionally intelligent, for example. And uh, we had many different, uh, if you look at the engineers at the, in the company, uh, there's a lot of different attachment styles. Some were very motivated by success and exiting and making money. Some wanted to be thought leaders and uh, be known as great uh, engineers or scientists. Uh, um, some essentially wanted to be part of a group. And, and we, uh, Understanding that uh, type of attachment style and having a good mix of uh, personalities in the company definitely helped. Uh. So you think that was sort of a vital, if you could call recruiting skill you learned, is to really get to the bottom of what people and engineers that are thinking of joining your team really want? 100% uh, from a psychological point of view, if you were, if you were aware of that, it would definitely uh, help you motivate them better and... Uh, manage them uh, better. Um, the uh, other aspect of it, yeah, uh, I would agree. Yeah. What do you think's like the biggest component maybe of when you're putting together an actual team? Uh, like, what do you look for in people? Like, what are some of the attributes that stand out? Do you think that it's the Harvard grad that just excites you or like someone that with a great background? Is it certain skill sets? Is there certain aptitude tests or things that you find that have historically produced amazing engineers? Like what are some of those qualities that you look for when, when building a team? To be honest, what I love most is uh, curiosity and uh, being proactive, having tied to do projects on your own before. Uh, that I value that uh, learning experience a lot. Uh, other than that, uh, I really don't care about the degree or the education or we typically in the technology industry, we have uh, uh, different uh, types of uh, skill tests and, and like pair coding exercises that signal how we would work, to, uh, how you would work with us, for example, uh, or kind of give us an idea uh, of 
uh, yeah, how what your style is and your ability to work with us. But uh, I think the best signal essentially is being uh, like having that uh, curiosity and entrepreneurship drive yourself. Uh, for if because we definitely. When you're a small team, we expect every single member of the team to own his individual department and to train it, to treat it like his own business or baby in a way. And uh, I feel like uh, seeing uh, that on LSME is a good signal for someone that, will that can own his uh, particular responsibility. For me personally, that helped so much, the need to wear many different hats, right? And to go from two essentially different industries, we went from hardware to software and to figuring that out and just that whole shift was, was a number one, a huge pivot, but it's being open to that pivot. One thing that frustrates me when working with any company is companies that just don't want change, right? Because life is forever changing. It's even hard when people ask you, where do you, like, what, what do you want to do when you grow up? It's like, I can kind of see where I want to be in three years. But so much changes. I mean, who I was three years ago is so different than who I am today. Do you do you feel that? One hundred percent. And uh, hearing you say that, I did not honestly. And uh, sorry, so it's like think a lot about the effect it had on the sales team. Uh, in that respect, uh, I like yeah, you guys uh, had to switch between like from selling one product that was completely different to selling another one that was completely different in two different markets and you adapted to that uh, in, a, yeah, in a great way. And I think, yeah, like having that uh, a willingness to wear many different hats uh, and uh, be what your team needs uh, is something that uh, people have worked in startups uh, have done before. And it gives them a broad set of skills uh, that makes them very useful. Uh, the Argument against that is uh, it makes it kind of hard to specialize in something. Yeah, like the main argument against uh, the broad skills or uh, having to wear many different hats in a startup is it makes it, it makes it hard for you to specialize in a particular thing. For example, I uh, as an engineer, I could have spent all my time uh, developing AI models and becoming a great AI scientist, for example. But I spent a lot of time building uh, the SDKs or... Uh, the licensing portions of the product or the backend portion of it. And uh, it prepared me to be able to build a product from scratch again in the future. But arguably, you could say that uh, you did not spend as much time as you could have in, uh, in becoming a great uh, uh, like, I know, AI uh, engineer or computer vision engineer, for example. But from uh, my experience that comes later, we had to wear different hats in the beginning. If you find a sustainable way to operate, You'll find uh, everyone. You find that everyone's falling into the dif different, uh, into the specific roles and uh, starting to specialize, and that's what happened uh, with us uh, eventually. Well, you definitely have to wear a lot of hats, but also you have to step into roles you're not comfortable with, and that process yeah. is is very eye-opening. One hundred percent. I think in that case, uh, some people might use the phrase. Uh, it doesn't give them joy, uh, but uh, I personally uh, have never kind of experienced it in, in that way. Uh, I may not have enjoyed the work, but I did enjoy doing it and, and uh, like uh, the steps uh, closer got me towards my, towards my end product. 
Um, well, it's interesting because, you know, leadership at some level, if you're going to be a great CEO, if you're going to be a great CTO, you need to know a little bit about everything, right? Because you need to be able to intelligently speak to the lessons of every different department. You need to know and be able to call out bullshit, right? If somebody is or isn't who they say they are, which in sales is tough because in sales world, it's sales, you know, people selling you on certain attributes. Um, but you need to know at some level, a high level overview, but it's, it seems that early stage is all about proving the concept. It's all about realizing there's something really here. So you're wearing, you know, the multiple hats of engineering, you're getting the sales and marketing engine running, you're getting the funnel set up, you're trying to get that initial customer or that initial customer starts to use up all your bandwidth and now you're like shit are we spending time on the right people and then eventually you get to a point where people believe in you you might potentially raise money and now you can start specializing in some of those niches it's interesting just the the, the life cycle of it and once you start to do it i mean just going through the process with Trueface, it gave me a lot more confidence because i was able to see you know with your and sean's guidance that it's possible right it's not always easy, but it's yeah. possible if you stay committed and that's what you guys did. You you never gave up. It wasn't perfect, but you never gave up. You constantly improved the technology. You were good to your people, which is I think the most important thing that deep down you guys all respected everyone. And that's why you guys got so much respect. And uh, you did great things because of it. So I think there's a lot of like core valuable lessons there. Totally. Um the way we uh, approach Chewy and Two Face, um, we uh, like you said, you initially need to prove the idea or dealers kit somehow. Uh, you could potentially get a small amount of seed funding to do that, but most likely you would not. And in our case, uh, we made Chewy. We did a crowdfunding campaign, which we collected no money, but we got about three hundred thousand dollars in orders, and that kind of served as that validation. We used that to raise about a million dollars, and. Uh, we uh, in the process realized that it was not uh, the best product we could pursue, and that's when we pivoted to software. Uh, the way we approached that as well is we went fishing for the best market fit or use case and quickly realized it's a double-edged sword. We had uh, big clients in many different, uh, completely different use cases from DOD to security to uh, commerce, for example. And at that point, we realized that uh, we realized that specializing meant saying no to some of those businesses and some of those money avenues. Uh, so we kind of ended up with a, a few loose market fits initially. And that's uh, something you need to be conscious of if you go fishing, for example, for a market fit, or if you uh, approach it with a very mind, uh, uh, with a very open mindset, you could potentially decide to be in a particular problem space, but not know exactly what your uh, product is, start with something relatively uh, uh, small and then- Got a niche out, yeah. Exactly, but uh, the, again, like, the ad, like the, if you have a uh, technology that can be applied to many use cases like ours, the possible- it's not an easy uh, process. Yeah, there's possible side effects that you need to be conscious of and need to have a plan for managing. I think and one thing that I, I personally found kind of crazy throughout that journey was certain clients just have so much more time intensiveness that you need to deal with them. There's high maintenance clients and there's non high maintenance clients and a high maintenance client can drown you. Totally. Um, that's one thing I learned from uh, our company for future endeavors. Uh, 
we can definitely I'm just gonna move your mic closer because you kind of go back and back yeah there's a um a good saying in the computer science engine uh industry um uh, it kind of summarizes into doing the easy thing by doing the hard thing first and uh, i've experienced that uh in the process of building uh machine learning models or ai models uh, versus rule-based algorithms if you have a complex process it's almost always easier to in the long run to uh approach it uh, from a machine learning approach uh versus trying to develop rules based algorithm for it if the like the rules eventually as they go they start to conflict with each other uh it's a like a combinatorial explosion problem um with the uh, sorry what were you like uh yeah, but one thing you just got me thinking about. So you're saying that you almost approach a lot of problems with the machine learning. Yeah, approach. okay, the support aspect. So uh, with in our case, for example, we always build product the fastest the fastest way possible. But uh, I learned the hard way that uh, it's much easier in the long run if you uh, think through the support maintenance and testing aspect of it from the get-go and uh, answer all those questions, automate as much of it as you can. The best way for small teams like... So you think of maintenance and support before building it, almost what are the questions that are gonna be asked? Exactly, and uh, even from a, a core engineering approach, uh, doing a test, test of and development uh, and uh, ensuring that all your code base is tested is honestly uh, the easiest way to build a product long in the long run, it seems daunting and annoying at first. And uh, I was uh, one of the main offenders in terms of not testing. <laughs> yeah, not following that approach and writing tests after I actually make the product. Uh, but it's always uh, from now the uh, I've grown up and I see that the easier way long in the long run is to actually go through that stuff first. Uh, support in this uh, support wise as well uh, the easiest or the best way for small teams like ours to do more is with automation and uh, you can definitely uh, automate a good aspect of uh, of the support process and uh, do it recursively and iteratively whenever someone asks a question whenever you solve a problem you can quickly find uh, yourself uh, building a knowledge base that um, includes most of the problems that people hit. What are some and of those favorite tools that you like to use for those support things that just jump to mind that are money for automating? Nowadays, I would definitely recommend using uh, uh, an AI-based uh, uh, search question tool or even a chatbot, but GPT-3, for example, does the search question. Uh, you can, if you have a... Uh, a company with existing support materials, you can take that, ingest it all, uh, th like add it all to the model, for example, and then uh, you would end up with something where I could ask a question and it will direct me to exactly the best part of the documentation or the example code that uh, would solve my... And again, uh, and, uh, it's an iterative process. The first iteration of it might not uh, be good enough to uh, reduce the, well, like it will definitely reduce the burden by a little bit, but it may not get you to the percentage you want, but you will get there with iterations is uh, my point. I love what you yeah. said about 
you approach everything from a machine learning perspective. How would you define machine learning in a simplistic way for someone that doesn't know? So uh, I was using that example as opposed to uh, making a rules-based uh, algorithm. So uh, machine learning is just uh, a way, an automated way to come up with an equation that links inputs to outputs. Uh, so uh, I could, for example, and if I was making a chatbot, I could write a set of rules that says, hey, if this word exists in the greeting words, uh, answer with hello or hi if this word, that, and can I make a, like a simple set of rules like that that would cover maybe uh, every interaction I can think of. Uh, that's incredibly hard in the long run. You could potentially, you can, you'll make that much quicker uh, and like you'll make a first prototype and demo much quicker, but in the long run, uh, you'll find yourself having a lot of rules and those rules end up conflicting with each other. It just becomes a maze. Exactly. Uh, it's much machine learning, uh, on the other hand, will uh, approach it from an input output uh, perspective. Your, the input can be, for example, what you say to the bot and the output is the correct response the bot should say. And, uh, in this particular use case, if I was to delve more into the details, the words uh, are inputted as numbers, and the numbers have semantic meaning. So the word uh, table and kitchen are closer number-wise than the word kitchen and street, for example. Uh, so the AI model is able to learn from that, from uh, the occurrence of those words and uh, uh, the semantic meaning and essentially answer uh, it's much easier on the long run to to approach that problem of uh, uh, question-answer, uh, knowledge-based search, or a conversational interface from a machine learning perspective than from a rules-based perspective. So when you think about the machine mer uh, machine mer machine learn learning model, essentially you need to input a certain level of questions to and give it answers so if you were to apply machine learning to let's say something as simple as a sales funnel you could build a model that says if a lead comes here and i guess all sort of sales marketing tools use some level of that because it's kind of like a if then then what but it's linked together in a much more detailed way so the one thing to keep in mind is uh, it only becomes uh useful to use a machine learning model if you have many of those if then then that type of rules if you only have a few then it's much better to write an algorithm uh to do it for example just a set of rules uh yes in marketing and uh, sales uh there's definitely uh we've uh we've done high and low touch outreach uh before uh, high touch was a time-consuming part of the sales process we uh one uh, use case, for example, that uh, you could use machine learning for is uh, you can train an uh, AI model to write uh, the high-touch uh, outreach messages based on a LinkedIn profile. So in this particular case, uh, the inputs would be uh, uh, a paragraph that includes the name, the occupation, uh, the industry, maybe previous work and and job uh, and titles, etc., and uh, you can the input in this case would be the message like the previous messages. You can go through your LinkedIn, for example, pull all those messages and the profiles, 
and uh, it would be profiles and output uh, is the message. And you can train a model to basically like high touch uh, out to each messages in your style. Uh, later you can give him a give it a LinkedIn profile and it would uh, write the message for you. And you can even uh, do some of the low touch techniques in terms of sequencing it and, and uh, automating the follow up, et cetera. Uh, there's definitely yeah a lot of use cases in sales, uh, a lot of use cases in marketing, and um, like mm -hmm. I said, sometimes it ends up being the easy thing to do in the long run uh, versus a, a seemingly simpler approach. What are some of the first steps to even enter into that world? Just learning SQL and Python. Yeah, to be honest, uh, it does uh, help for you to have an understanding of how uh, the technology works. Uh, but you don't need uh, you don't need to understand uh, deep learning, for example, or the inner workings of a deep learning model. In the case of uh, GPT three, uh, all of that has been abstracted uh, uh, away for you. Uh, it's a REST API on the cloud with a uh, very clear set of inputs and outputs to to expect in the response. And um, they, uh, in the case of the question search, for example, the chatbot, you uh, just put a document together, they call it uh, like a, essentially it's a type of JSON list document. And uh, you make a document like that with all your content, upload it, all the training and everything happens in the cloud and then you're able to use it. Uh, all of that is abstracted away for you. The more you do it and if you spend a lot of time into it, you'll find yourself wanting to kind of imp improve on uh, what exists out there or come up with your own specialized techniques and you may be in, uh, incentivized to learn it more, but yeah, it's uh, it's fun, and you don't have to know how it works to get started with it. Is, uh, okay. I love that. Thanks for yeah. diving into it, and, and just to kind of change the subject a little bit, one thing that I, uh, I always just geek out on is whenever I see your Instagram stories and I see what you're up to because you're a mysterious man I mean you're you're here you're there you're you're all different places and your your mind is is very creative and and it goes many different ways which leads you into these crazy adventures uh, one thing I find fascinating about you is your love for machines you know after you know you had the the great success with Trueface and stuff next thing you know Nazar is racking up all these amazing machines and you're building a straight you know engineering production warehouse type vibe and you're constantly learning both the hardware and the software component you it's almost like your love is for all my my love is for uh, for general product creation i um uh, i just don't like to depend on others to uh, or uh, we've had bad experiences for example with the uh, development cycles in China uh, and a long time ago. Um, not to, I've made my most recent board in China, not to say that uh, uh, it's always like that. It's, uh, I've had many great experiences as well, but yeah, I, I love the ability to take everything into my hand, make it from A to Z. And uh, I'm, I find I'm able to make things much better and like iterate on it uh, easier when I'm able to do that, if I, uh, but I don't think that's the root cause. I think that that's like, I think the root thing is that you personally just find it fascinating. Oh, I personally definitely find it fascinating. I love it. And, uh, like you're yeah, a full, you're a full the, geek, like full geek. 
100%. I definitely see the economic uh, benefits uh, <laughs> to it as well. Uh, yeah, a long time ago, the uh, the people that owned the machines, in a sense, the means of production uh, kind of made all the money. Uh, it's kind of changing now. It's the people that own the algorithms uh, uh, that make the most money. But uh, I do think, uh, yeah, it's definitely fascinating. And I love... Uh, being able to do everything on the one roof in my house and being able to iterate myself. Without yeah, everyone, on. everyone needs a shameless plug from time to time. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely gonna make you one for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah. That, that's hilarious. The concept is really cool of a shameless plug, by the way. So I, uh, it reminds me of a similar idea I made uh, as a doorbell. I, uh, if you remember my previous place in uh, Venice, it was uh, a multi. Uh, uh, family building without uh, a doorbell on the outside. Uh, so I would miss signature packages all the time and uh, friends had to call me to come let them in, etc. And uh, what I did was essentially just CNC a... Uh, and what is a CNC? That's a machine? Exactly. Just a machine that cuts uh, things uh, for you. It's uh, CNC stands for Computer Numerical Code. It's just uh, a very old uh, set of instructions to making what you call Cartesian machines that uh, are, that move in a Cartesian way. It's a very like simple, the 3D printer, for example, is uh, works in the, the same way. They all use uh, something called G-code. The CNC, which is like the uh, collo like colloquial name for the cutter, what we like to use the cutting machine, what I call the cutting machine. I don't understand is, any of uh, that, but it, it sounds yeah, crazy. Yeah, works, it works the same way as well. <laughs> Um, basically I made, uh, uh, I cut a similar thing, uh, with a CNC machine and it just had, uh, uh, at the time it was a problem four and then a QR code and then my, uh, initials NC. And basically if you scanned it, it opened a web page with WebRTC and allowed you to, it would ping me like all you had to do is scan the QR code on the, at the door and it would ring my phone. And then I could click the link and talk to you from the door. Uh, the I put video calling on the web page through a technology called WebRTC. And I geofenced it because I worried that people may use it to kind of bother me later. <laughs> so uh, it only works if you're standing. Uh, at the time, I think it was 500 meters, like 500 meters uh, from my entrance, for example. It's cool that when you see a problem, you see it as a problem and you try to solve it. There's a lot of people when they see a problem, they just kind of incorporate the problem into their life. It's like a workaround while keeping the problem, but you have this mindset of how can I make this easier? Yeah, actually that's uh, the, the side benefit of being an engineer. I would actually, I love problems. <laughs> I uh, wish people would tell me a lot of problems. Yeah, you said earlier. It gives me a lot of ideas. Or use when you make a like motherboard, what's that machine? That oh, that pick and place machine, uh, a PCB, a printed circuit board. And that actually produces the chips that go into like an iPhone or like the actual boards? Yes, exactly. So I have a, a pick and place machine that's capable of placing 0201 uh, size components. So it's a very small components. And uh, I buy reels of components. Uh, typically they come in reels of 10,000 each, but uh, it's a lot of components and I'm not gonna need that much. And DigiKey and Mauser, for example, these two services in the US, they have uh, smaller reels that they cut from the original one. And um, 
I ordered these layers of components. I would des I design a PCB, and then uh, I can essentially just slide it into the machine, and then give it uh, uh, all the components and feeders. Uh, so I think it takes many. I have uh, over twenty feeders on on mine, for example, and uh, it would uh, pick up the components from them and place them on uh, on the boards. After after that, uh, so. If it's crazy like, that's just what you you do on a tuesday afternoon for fun <laughs> yeah it's uh <laughs> it's one of those things where i believe uh uh that technology that manufacturing is somewhat going to change so the prevailing manufacturing model now is uh centralized and just in time manufacturing so if you think about the iphone it's made in one place in china and uh that it's made uh with uh uh, they they hold as little components as possible. Uh, for example, like if you think about the components that go into making an iPhone, uh, holding a week's worth worth of inventory to make iPhones a month can be a difference of uh, a lot of money. Uh, so the system is designed to kind of make everything centralized in one place with economies of for economies of uh, scale, and then uh, to kind of get shipments of components almost every day. Would you say that's a universal principle that for all of the most successful products? So because of, uh, because uh, manufacturing, uh, for many reasons, uh, including labor costs, uh, became centralized in East Asia, that became the prevailing model for almost all successful products. But uh, I think, uh, so lately I do see uh, another model uh, being possible, like a distributed on-demand manufacturing model. So if you uh, think about a lot of the uh, software that we made like the AI software we could have made some uh, deployment hardware or cameras to make it easier it's very high margin software the hardware in this case is just an enabler and uh, hardware like that can be made on demand and it can be made in a distributed way in the market where it's going to be consumed so without uh, having to invest a lot to make it in China. and uh, So in the most simplistic way, there's companies like Printful where you can print a shirt on demand. It's going to cost a lot more money because they have to do it on demand, but you don't need to buy a bunch of, uh, a bunch of shirts, for example. You could print them as they go. This is the same idea. Like with technology today, you can almost order, let's say, let's just use an iPhone and then it could be printed and built within like a week using modern hardware. Yeah, so uh, the iPhone is somewhat, uh, you can abstract away some of the uh, complexity. Uh, the, what makes the on-demand more expensive is pr uh, mostly just the economies of scale, the uh, buying less components, for example. But uh, in the most recent board I designed, it's a carrier board for uh, something called a CM4, a compute model for by Raspberry Pi. And it's a, a very small computer and a tiny card, and it's made for uh with connectors for your engineers to integrate into designs and um raspberry pi is also already benefiting from the economies of scale of making many they're selling it at uh near cost and um you could buy like that particular model is made to be sold uh in in large quantities for commercial product development uh so designing with what you call system and modules or a uh compute model like this one can abstract away some of the complexity and uh, I can make a sp simpler carrier board on demand and then just kind of 
And the advantage of that uh, approach too is you have uh, very often many different kinds of, uh, many different options of that uh, particular uh, brains, for example. So uh, like it can come with two gigabytes of RAM up to like eight or more, uh, like very, uh, like small, like uh, four gigabytes of flash storage all the way to like 32 and more, for example. So depending on the use case and how powerful it needs to be, you have many options and it's as easy as uh, like popping one out and like put it in, put in the other one. Uh, so I do think there's a lot of uh, products that, uh, especially the niche uh, high margin uh, products, be it uh, for defense, for example, security or analytics, or, um, content creation. Uh, there's a lot of products that can be made in the US and and maybe not purely on demand, but small in a smaller batch type uh, uh, way. So you're saying yeah. almost that this new technology is in a sense making the U.S. have more of an opportunity to be more competitive with, let's say, a China in terms of being able to do this in our backyard. Well, I don't think it's just the technology. Uh, China, like middle income in China is, uh, is going. I'm sorry, the middle class in China is going. Uh, the income level is going, and it's becoming much less uh, economical for companies to manufacture there. That's why uh, a lot of Chinese companies are setting up com uh, factories in Africa, where the income level is still low. For example, uh, I, Apple uh, announced that they're about to start manufacturing iPhones in India as well, and um, add the trade war on the tariffs as well, which made I had to pay. Uh, at least I think 20% if not more on that uh, pick and place machine to bring it here from China, uh, just in uh, tariffs uh, to, uh, uh, to so there's, a, there's an obvious upside to moving it. There's definitely uh, an obvious upside uh, to, yeah, beyond the like tariffs and shipping costs, et cetera, uh, to having it here and to making some stuff uh, here. It depends on the product, of course. I do think there's a, a large, uh, category of products that can be uh, made here successfully and that can be uh, very profitable. Uh, the other uh, aspect of it, uh, yeah, like you said, is the technology, is the fact that in my house now I can have an injection molding machine, uh, CNC, so I can, uh, if you, uh, the, the uh, MacBooks uh, are single, uh, CNC single pieces of aluminum, so essentially the cut uh, with a CNC machine the same way, albeit perhaps like one that has more accesses. Um, so yeah, I, you can, under one move, I can make an enclosure that looks like the MacBook uh, one from metal. I can inject uh, plastic uh, to make on the holders for the inside or something like that. I can make the PCB at home uh, and I can do the software. And that's kind of essentially uh, was part of my motivation is to be able to do everything in <laughs> Venice locally and uh, tie and uh, yeah, well, find the best product without having to go to China, et cetera. I mean, I loved our conversation last night. It was so fun because number one, we're both at a stage in our lives where we've seen a lot of things and mm -hmm. we've seen a lot of people have success in things. And we've also seen that there's a lot of potential waste and a lot of businesses and a lot of potential partnerships and people and things to do it's really hard to pick a single one because there's so many good things you almost want to just dip your toes in everything but naturally that's a recipe for disaster because you gotta you know 
focus on one, build it up before you continuously get squirrel brain. But someone told me something just on the last podcast and he said, life isn't about finding what you want. Life's about finding what you don't want. And I thought that was so profound because I always get these things in my head that I'm like, yo, if I just get an ice bath in my backyard, I'm going to be happy. Or like, yo, if I just have the most gangster Christmas party, which is coming up next Friday, I'm going to be happy. Or if I just go and become successful at this career, or if I build this company, or if I date this girl, I'm going to be happy. But generally speaking, life is a pursuit of trying to find the things that fulfill you. And it's a giant game of up and down cat and mouse and rejection. I feel eventually if you keep playing that game and you keep chasing what you think might bring you that next level of happiness, you find what you don't want to do and you get closer to doing things and getting into routine of things you want to do. Do you ever feel that way when you're thinking about building a company or you're thinking about choosing what you want to do next or work on? It's definitely good to look at it from uh, this perspective. I don't think I've uh, done that before. But yeah, uh, what you just said kind of makes me think of uh, my brother, for example, as well. Uh, uh, I, I think he's the type that would enjoy software engineering, but he doesn't want to tie it. And uh, and I wonder Is he if the it's, rapper one. Yeah, exactly. And I wonder if he's uh, that uh, like the. Uh, finding the thing that's like well he's like a famous rapper he is uh what's his name uh his name is uh ray tanabic uh his group is the a6 gang uh, i'll send you some links uh, for it it's pretty it's good and like pretty funny as well shout out but uh yeah it's uh i feel like uh i wonder what if i was to look at things from his perspective what things that i don't want to tie that may that may uh, end up being fulfilling or that i may like for example uh that's uh what uh comes that's what comes to mind uh uh now yeah yeah it's interesting and uh i'm really looking forward to whatever you touch next because oh <laughs> yeah in terms of uh, uh to be honest yeah i do work on things i do believe in uh finishing things uh uh persisting with things as well uh but i do believe in uh and like noodling and learning as well too uh and that's kind of how i uh approached a lot of these things over the past few years so by the way uh i like never touched a 3d printer or cnc machine or pick and place machine before i bought them it was it's always one of those things where i just buy it i have no idea even how to assemble it and uh i would kind of just like you, just, you get yourself in over your head and you're like ah it honestly just uh takes that first step like attempt in it and then it turns out that it's much easier than uh, you expected it to be. I love uh, that. That's like the biggest truth bomb principle for all the listeners. I mean, it's just taking the first step. Yeah, one one hundred percent. And then the next step. Yeah. So, and uh, recently, uh, to be honest, I've just been in a learning mindset, uh, uh, tying as many things as possible. But uh, I do certainly believe in persisting with something uh, once you see it and start it. But at the same time. Uh, having an open mind to uh, seeing another opportunity, a better opportunity to pivot, for example, or yeah, another opportunity that comes along. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the way of the Nazar. That's the Chaffney way. <laughs> all the contradictions. <laughs> all the contradictions. <laughs> you gonna move to Miami or what? 
I'd love to move to Miami. It's incredible. I mean, I'm seeing coconuts light outside. Isn't that a now. vibe? You yeah. just see coke. I mean, you get coconuts in Cali too, though, so it's not really. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen ones uh, that. Uh... <laughs> you don't get coconuts no, in Cali. It's just palm trees. That confuses me. What's a palm tree without a coconut? You got palm trees in the backyard, no coconuts. I, yeah, I do think there's. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's true. I, and they, I think all of them have coconuts. Nah, no, palm no, trees are different like than the coconut palm, trees. The palm trees uh, we have in uh, the UAE and Morocco, some of them, they produce dates, like even the ones in California. And then some of the other ones they produce... Uh, is this the one that like becomes... Uh, is this like a green coconut or is this a regular one? I think that's the... Those ones they, are the green. They start green and then... Oh, so they eventually become like... Uh, right, there's uh, three stages. There's green, okay. then yellow, which starts forming the inner shell. And then brown when they fall. That's the hardest shell and the sweetest uh, coconut oh. water. But you got to crack it open with a machete. Yeah. Because it has like the, the coconut in the, in the center of it, right? When it's yellow and brown, yes. Yeah. They train monkeys to climb up coconut trees and uh, pick the coconuts. And uh, I remember seeing it in the news. Uh, That's so badass. Like, There's monk trained monkeys. Yeah, I remember seeing it in the news recently because it upset uh, some of the like human rights. Oh, sorry, like animal rights groups. Uh, if uh, there was a mutual beneficial relationship and those monkeys were getting hooked up and eating good, and I mean that's potentially symbiotic, but I could see it go both ways. Yeah, I think it's the fact that uh, they're in captivity. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, anytime you put anything into captivity, that's sure. opening up a can of worms. Yeah. That I don't really want to touch on because I don't really have a great insight into that. Besides the fact that I love dogs. Yeah. Uh, mutual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Farmers in Thailand are still using monkey labor to supply coconuts to the international market. That's crazy. Coconut laborers. <laughs> We went from sharks with freaking lasers to straight coconut laborers. What's crazy about coconuts is how many people die each year from falling coconuts. Seriously? There's more people. Fact check me on this, Sky, but I believe that there's more deaths from just coconuts falling off trees than there are shark attacks. I'm almost sure of that. There are so few shark attacks, so it's an easy stat to beat. But coconuts falling on people's head is a significant source of death. And it makes sense because you have no idea when they're falling. It's like a hazard everywhere you go. I guess that's disproven the shark coconut thing. <laughs> it isn't? It's, it's disproven. So let more people die from shark attacks than coconuts falling? Yeah. So if 10 people die from shark attacks, two people die from coconuts. I'm going to have to see another fact check on that. That's crazy. This is coconut information. Oh, yeah. That's biased. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the first thing on Google is no, 150 people are not killed by coconuts each year. So uh, it's not looking good. I don't know. They probably use coconuts in the early days just as straight weapons. Those things are macho. Imagine just getting hit with a catapult of coconuts. Those things would rock your world. I guess rocks would be better. Anyways, I, I remember I walked under this sculpture. And by sculpture, I mean just like a building at a at a college dorm and an icicle, probably like six feet tall, just fell right in front of me. It, it dropped about a foot in front of me and I stopped after it just shattered. There was this girl to the left of me 
And we both just looked at each other like, we just came this close to just death. Are you kidding me? It was a gnarly experience. I can imagine coconuts be doing that all day long. Yeah, I see your lights out there getting smashed by coconuts. Don't fool me. <laughs> no, there's two on the side are smashed. Really? Yeah, which, which the second side? one went. Which side? Right over here. Oh, yeah, those ones got smashed, yeah. yeah, yeah I think yeah. one was more recent, but... Anyways, we should wrap this up. <laughs> um, I do love that talk, though. Yeah, it's great. But for another time. But the reality is that the world is a better place when people can design, can do, and take advantage of their lives. And in my opinion, I know I'm a sales guy, right? I like people. I talk to people. I I like marketing, but when it comes to engineering, I'm just so in over my head. So when I see someone like you and and these engineerative types of people that see a problem and solve it, like like our friend Michael from Weejits, he's a certified engineer, has all these different patents. When I see people that love challenges and create solutions, it gets me excited because it just goes to show that you can turn anything into reality. And you've been an, an amazing teacher for me to be able to learn that lesson and apply it into my everyday life. So number one, I appreciate you for that. And there's a question we always ask everyone that comes on the show. And it's sort of like our last question. And it says, if you could go back in time and the current you could talk to the younger you, imagine you're like 16 years old and you're talking to yourself and you're like, hey, Nazars, you from the future, man. No, you're not on any mushrooms or anything. This is real life. And you could have told yourself one, two, or three things that could have saved you a ton of time, money, heartache, headache, any of those things. What are some of those maybe core lessons you would have told a younger you? Tell myself to persist. I don't think I was uh, as conscious of the value of uh, persistence. Uh, and I would uh, also kind of highlight like the like nurture versus nature I do kind of don't think it's uh like i think engineering is doable for most people just like sales is probably doable for most people as well i think it's really just kind of being nurtured and uh kind of taught like a set of skills to kind of think that way and uh the other um aspect of it is just to maybe not uh like be as test or like not take life as uh seriously uh it's not, uh, it doesn't really change anything. Uh, yeah, just um, do your best essentially, but take it easy. <laughs> Let's run through a wall. Let's go. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, I appreciate you. Is there anything else that you'd want to share to anybody in the world of what, wanting to start a business, wanting to get into this world? Anything else you'd want to share? Uh, take that first step. It, it will become much easier once you do. With that said, we appreciate you, brother. It is a damn good day to have a damn good day.